Hello, and welcome to my podcast, The Meiji Restoration, A China Contrast. This is Episode 7, A Gift from the Emperor. In the last episode, we learned about the continuing hostilities between Japan and China that were being played out in and over Korea. We also learned that there was a treaty of Tianjin in 1885 between China and Japan regarding Korea. Both nations, China and Japan, were on a high state of alert. From there, I talked about the events and people behind the run-up to the written constitution in Japan. This is where I left the history just short of the presentation of the new constitution to the Japanese. In this episode, of course, I will get to the constitution. Before I do, I want to discuss the efforts of the Meiji government and the citizens that were put forth in the modernization efforts. If I have time, I will also talk a little of the political aftermath of the Constitution and its implementation, and a little bit about the rescript on education. By the 1880s, Japan began to see the benefits and the detriments of its commitments and changes to the modernization efforts. as I will get into in a moment. One of the detriments of the booming silk industry in Japan in the mid-1880s was the forced servitude of many women and young girls that were engaged in these factories. Besides the deplorable working conditions, they worked for low pay and sacrificed much of themselves for their families and the emperor. One notable and unique feature the Meiji used in order to spur and encourage industrial development was the zaibatsu system. This provided incentives to private investors, giving them special privileges to accommodate the government's goals. One such company that took advantage of the system from its inception was Mitsubishi, a name we are all familiar. By the way, the Zaibatsu system was so successful that Korea eventually copied it. An interesting case in point was the silk industry. At that time, most Japanese businesses were not competitive against Western businesses, particularly on a price basis. The only way they might be competitive, was with lots of government money and help. But silk was an exception. Italy had long been the leader in the world on silk production. In the 1880s, it failed, and the Japanese now, then, could compete and make a profit. 
the Meiji government made enormous investments in building railways, shipping lines, telegraph and telephone systems, shipyards, mines, munition works, as well as consumer industries, such as sugar, glass, textiles, cement, and chemicals. And the statistics back this up. Coal production and consumption went way up. It had doubled from 1875 to 1885 in a span of 10 years. In 1872, Japan only had 18 miles of railroad track. By 1887, 15 years later, it had gone to 640 miles. By 1880, telegraph lines linked all cities. By 1890, there were over 1,400 miles of rail, over double just three years earlier. However, there is no free lunch, and by the mid-1880s, all of these government expenditures caused a financial crisis. This led to to a reform of its currency and the creation of the Bank of Japan. The Meiji government also sold their numerous investments in these businesses to private investors to help the government's strained finances. It was clear the proposed written constitution had to, in theory, as we shall see, protect the emperor's sovereignty through which the elites or oligarchs could rule. Ito Hirobumi, I've mentioned him many times, was the Constitution's principal drafter. And he saw the emperor as a spiritual force, sacred and inviolable. All powers were to be placed in his hands. This was the starting point of the Constitution. Also, In drafting the Constitution, the central goal was to balance between the emperor's sovereign rights and an elected representative assembly with powers that would limit the sovereign. That would prove to be easier to plan than to practice. For those of you that find this kind of stuff interesting, as I do, The Privy Council, reviewing potential constitutional models, had determined the English Constitution gave Parliament too much power. It also found that the French and Spanish models gave too much power to the monarch. As already stated in the last podcast, the Privy Council chose the German model. The U.S. Constitution, of course, not having a monarch, was never in serious consideration. Besides, the Japanese found it too liberal. So the country's leaders began in earnest on the Constitution in 1886. Finally, the Constitutional Study Group, or Privy Council, was dissolved in 1886 and replaced with a cabinet. 
Ito Hirabumi would become Japan's first prime minister. Ito wisely decided to try out various components of the projected constitution, you know, put them in use at the local level before they became national. A cabinet system was was created in 1886 to exercise executive functions of the government. And a representative assembly was instituted locally in 1885 to give that a go as well. A formal Privy Council was then recreated in 1888, and the Privy Council would serve as advisors to the Emperor. Finally, on February 11, 1889, the Constitution was presented as a gift from the Emperor to his people. In all, with the preamble, the Constitution would contain over 3,500 words. It contained 76 articles. Its first chapter contained its greatest innovation, a popular national assembly. And it would be called a diet. The national assembly would be bicameral, with an upper house and a lower house. The upper house would be called the House of Peers. Peers were the old aristocrat class, formerly the samurais and the other elites and oligarchs. The lower house was known as the House of Representatives, and the houses would share equal powers. The Diet's greatest power was over the purse. If the Diet failed to pass a budget, the previous year's budget would automatically continue into the next next fiscal year. It also had the power to pass other laws. And the Diet resembled the English Parliament. The Constitution also declared the Emperor as sacred and inviolable, and that he had unlimited powers, at least in theory. It combined in him sovereignty and and supreme command of the military. Only the Emperor could modify the Constitution. The Emperor chose the Cabinet. More on that next. The Emperor also chose the Prime Minister, more on that later as well. The Emperor had, again, in theory, full executive authority and could appoint and dismiss all government officials. The Emperor had the sole right to declare war, make peace, make treaties, and dissolve the lower house. The Emperor was the sovereign Japan not the people. The emperor could also issue imperial ordinances that had the effect of laws when the diet was not in session. In addition to the emperor, a cabinet was created, populated by ministers appointed by the emperor. They would answer to the emperor, not the diet. Through the emperor, they had executive control of the government. 
The prime minister was appointed by the emperor. The emperor was the head of the state. The prime minister was the head of the government. The same constitution also created an independent judiciary. The second chapter of the constitution declared the rights of the people. And it is modeled vaguely after the Americans' Bill of Rights. It guaranteed various civil rights, such as freedom of religion, occupation, and speech, but all, quote, within the limits of the law, unquote. And this is an important distinction with the American Bill of Rights. The Constitution went into effect the following year of 1890. And the first diet was convened in 1890. First, let me say this about the document. It was an ambitious undertaking of some very serious people, including many citizens. The Meiji Constitution was Asia's first national constitution. It placed all sovereignty on the emperor and his cabinet and provided for a weak legislature. Many have opined it was only a middle-of-the-road document, but still placed Japan in the mainstream of world powers. Others have opined that even with the adoption of the Constitution, no one then would have considered Japan a modern nation. That would take a while. The document, at least, put in place political mechanisms that would bring Japan to a modern political state. Some have argued that the Constitution was too conservative and was doomed from its start. And even others have taken a somewhat opposite view, that the oligarchs gave away too much power to the lower house. In time, you will see which one was right. In my eyes, the document seems uniquely Japanese, not easily pigeonholed. It appears mixed constitutional and absolute monarchy. The question of whether the document promoted the monarch at the expense of the people or if it promoted democracy or representative government, would define the political struggle in the future. The elections of 1880 for the lower house saw about only 1% of the population voting. Now, that was because of design, as voting was severely restricted. So much so, that only 500,000 qualified to vote out of a total population then of around 40 million. And the election results, the first election results of 1890, horrified the administration. It was clear the lower house was hostile to the administration. 
Once the Diet convened, it did not take long for the lower house to realize that their control over the national purse gave them a share of political power. They immediately slashed the national budget by 8%. The elites realized they had given away more power than they intended. The lower house's attitude was there was now a way to limit the power power of the oligarchy. The lower house coalesced into two major political powers, if you will, parties. The liberals, called the Giuto, and the progressives, called the Cascinto. The following year, the prime minister, who would have been then Matsu, Matsukata Masayoshi, dissolved the diet and to make do with the previous year's budget. The hope was the lower house's elections in 1892 would bring a more moderate and less hostile assembly. It did not. In fact, the 92 election proved to be the most corrupt and violent elections in Japanese history. The oligarchs had tried every means, legal and illegal, to sway the election their way. And the diet session that was augured in by the 92 elections was just as contentious as the one before it. And the conservative elites were again horrified. At that point, they seriously thought about dissolving the Constitution completely. But I don't think dissolution was ever a realistic goal. It was not a realistic goal because of several reasons. For one, to dissolve it would risk Japan losing face. Second, it would make the Japanese look foolish to the West. Remember, one central reason for the Constitution was to legitimatize the Meiji government and Japan to the West and do away with the unequal treaties. Finally, Ito Hirobumi, who is now the Prime Minister again and who wrote the Constitution, was determined to make it work. He became Prime Minister again in 1893 for the second time and through his hard work and some cajoling, got a new budget from the Diet. And then he dissolved the Diet in 1894. In the first five years of the new new Constitution, the Diet was dissolved three times for the purpose of quelling contentiousness. Now, I said at the beginning of this episode, I was going to say a little bit about the rescript on education. And in early 1890, the emperor issued a directive to the prime minister to expedite the drafting of a document that would lay down a basic direction for the populace. Indeed, since the inception of the Restoration, some believed, even despite the Constitution's expressions, that the populace was lacking a basic direction. 
on October 30th, 1890, the final document was ready. It was a rescript, and it defined the grand object of education. Its official name, Imperial Rescript on Education, was intended to promote the virtue of loyalty to the state and the emperor first and fostering the proper moral relation with one's parents and other members of society. The rescript can be looked at as a manifesto of political paternalism based more or less on classic Confucianism. It would be unquestioned, single-minded, passionate fealty to the emperor, then the state, then the parents. Invariably, the Diet and the new Constitution were there to stay, at least for the foreseeable future. So the elites, or oligarchs, realized they would have to make deals with the Diet. And the Diet knew that too and pushed it to their advantage. The price of the deal with the Diet, among other things, was that they wanted a cabinet post or two. And for now, they all went happily along with this. But as soon often happens, events occur that can change the atmosphere as we shall see in the next episode. In the next episode, I get into the pivotal Sino-Japanese War, and things would never be the same afterward. Meiji Japan will experience great national pride and then suddenly be humiliated and learn some very valuable, valuable lessons from these next events I will talk about. Thank you. It has been a pleasure.